Econometrics? Sure. But are you familiar with the study of tassiomancy? Never given it any serious thought? Then how can you possibly understand the Chinese economy? Your podcasters shunned traditional university education and instead sought a guild apprenticeship, drawn to parapsychology and the occult even as a small one. It was natural this podcaster's inclinations were in alchemy, phrenology, griffography, cryptozoology, and economics. However, the Inquisition and Salem trials had somewhat narrowed opportunities in these first options, opportunities which are now reserved for only the most gifted. With an aptitude optimistically scored by one high school counselor as average, your podcaster nevertheless found a welcome home in economics. That field was supplemented with a minor in tassiomancy. Sometimes called tassology or tassiography, it's the study of tea leaves for the purposes of divination, fortune-telling, and interpreting the political economy of China. Yes, any economist can tell you about last month's results for industrial production, retail sales, and fixed asset investment. And Jeff Snyder does, in this, the 14th episode of Making Sense. We first steep and then drink Westlake's famous Dragonwell tea while discussing April's Treasury International Capital Report, the echoes of 2013, and the October fest in June-like optimism of German financiers. But then, conversation turns to the political intrigue surrounding President Xi and Premier Li. Peering inside our porcelain cups, the upward strokes of the leaves indicate a stabilized GDP level. The flourishes on the lower zone denote meticulous yet highly creative accounting. But if one observes the overall slant and the pressure of the leaves, there's a suggestion of acute overcapacity, a complete lack of recovery, and a pronounced inclination toward stagnation. If the monetary shadows are your fancy, then the next time someone asks, would you care for some tea or coffee? Something stronger, perhaps? You know what to say. Hello, and welcome to episode 14 of Making Sense, a Eurodollar University production. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and I am broadcasting to you over a number of podcasting networks. We've expanded beyond the three that we usually have to now include Apple, Castro, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, and Pocket Cast. And if that's not enough, we've got more coming. Joining me, as always, the head of global research, the chief investment officer, the man, the myth, the legend, Jeff Snyder. Jeff, good morning. Morning, Emil. Jeff, we're going to do a potpourri show today. There's not going to be one overriding theme unless we discover it by the end of the show. So we'll see how it goes. But we're going to do a potpourri. We're going to look back at a few of your articles. And the one we're going to start out with is we're going to start out with the Treasury International Capital Report. Wow. We, you know, this all started with uh, Eric Townsend, seven episodes of Eurodollar University, multi-hour. And I think we can do that just on the Treasury International Capital Report. Let's dip our toe into this vast pool of information and data about the Eurodollar system 
and talk about your article that you wrote for Alhambra Investments, still ticked off in the shadows in April. And we're talking about April 2020, but you start out the article talking about March 2013. Why? Well, first, I think you're right. I mean, we talk about TIC or Treasury International Capital Report. There's a lot of information there. And in addition to a lot of information there, I don't think most people know how to interpret what's available for us, what the Treasury Department actually collects. A lot of the reason for that is the Treasury Department doesn't know what it's collecting either. They've gathered a lot of this information almost by accident. They did not set out to start you know, mapping out and quantifying and, and taking data from this global offshore system. They simply said, okay, the dollar's reserve currency. Maybe we should start paying attention to some of the things going on there. And so they kind of kept track of how much uh, foreigners would buy and sell U.S. dollar securities, especially primarily U.S. treasuries. I mean, it's the Treasury Department after all. And why, you know, how, how those flows changed over time. And I think most people don't really realize why those flows change or what makes them change. The same reason why, you know, what makes the dollar go up and what makes it go down. Most people have in their mind the myth that they've been taught in college, and that extends to some extent into the tick data. So there's not really a very good frame of reference for the general public to interpret what's going on in, these, in, in the data and in, in this offshore monetary space. And 2013, I think, was a perfect um, you know, convergence of all of these factors where you had, okay, you know, the, the conventional narrative was we had a stumble in 2012, you know, near recession. Ben Bernanke wrote about it in his memoirs, called it a false dawn. That unleashed QE3 and then QE4. Yes, there were four QEs, the fourth QE in December. Time out, Jeff. People are going to say, no, there were only three QEs until the most recent one, which was maybe in September, but definitely by March of 2020. You got to define what was QE4. Well, like I said, you know, 2012 was supposed to be, again, recovery, but it ended up being more recessionary. And in September of 2012, um, this, the Federal Reserve panicked and decided they had to restart QE for the third time. And you got to remember that they were already doing an operation twist from 2011, which was supposed to replace QE2 that had been done in 2010. So it was almost a constant stream of, of these, these monetary programs. Now, QE3 was the Fed buying mortgage bonds, MBS securities. And so that was the original plan. They didn't want to get into the treasury market. And so over the next couple of months following the announcement of September 2012, and then the actual purchases, which began in October 2012, not much really changed. We had a big repo blow up at the end of, I believe it was October 2012. They convinced the Fed by December of 2012, they had to do more. So in December 2012, which was three months after the original QE3 announcement, they supplemented QE3 by buying also the same amount of U.S. Treasuries. So in, in technical point of fact, that was QE4. They did four QEs. They, why? I'm assuming they didn't make a big announcement about it. Why didn't they make a big announcement? Hey, we're doing QE4 now. Yeah, it was usually just a bland press release that they kind of slipped in there. And the reason is because, I mean, if you got to do something four times, after the fourth time, people might say, is this thing really working? I mean, is this really what you think it is? I mean, three was already risking it. So doing a fourth program so close to a third program, it kind of got the, you know, it left the impression, the wrong impression, in, in certainly in Ben Bernanke's mind that, hey, maybe this powerful monetary money printing flood that we're unleashing 
actually isn't all that powerful. And given what's going on in the repo markets and elsewhere, maybe it isn't actually a flood of liquidity either. So let's just quietly supplement QE3 by doing something entirely different alongside of it. Shadow QE. All right, moving on to uh, what happened in early 2013 that got the Treasury Department's attention. Well, by early 2013, again, the narrative was money printing, recovery, inflation, all that good stuff was going to happen. But we started to see a bunch of funky things happen in the repo market, and a primary among them, a burst of repo fails early in 2013, especially in March. By the second week of March, the Treasury Department got involved and called for, you know, all the banks out there that, that, were, that were within, you know, operating under its jurisdiction, anybody who owned a large position defined as $2 billion or more, the specific 10-year Treasury at the time, which I believe matured in February of 2023, so it was a 10-year bucket and it was a specific 10. Anybody who had a large position in that security had to report that position to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York with the idea being that normally when we saw see repo fails in the pre-crisis era, what that meant was um, shorts in the Treasury market, bond bears, um, were shorting partic particular treasury securities. And therefore, when they were forced to cover, usually in a scramble, that would cause these specific, specific securities to become what is known as special. It would be very short supply. I mean, think about any time uh, you're short covering in stock or any other financial security. If there's a rush of short covering, a short squeeze, it becomes hard to cover that security. And so that can interfere with the repo market because if a lot of people are short a particular security, it's then unavailable for use in repo. So there's a correlation between what treasury bond bears might be short particular securities and repo fails, but not to that kind of a level that was going on in March, 2013. It was much broader than the 10 year bucket. And Jeff, I'm doing some quick math in my head here. If this security was a Feb maturing in February of 2023 and it was a 10 year bond and we subtract 10 years. So we're talking about, this was just issued in February of 2013 when it got the attention of the Treasury Department. So it was on the run. Is that right? And does that matter? Yeah, on the run is the most, one of the most important factors in the repo market where it pertains to collateral. On the run is the U.S. government, the Treasury Department auctions off a particular security, whether it's a note or a bond. And as it's auctioned, that, that, that front piece, that, that one that they call on the run, is the most liquid. It's the one that everybody trades in because it's the, it's the most recent one. It's the one that matches more closely the maturity characteristics, the, the yield characteristics that, that, that were, that were uh, in place at the time it was auctioned. So the, the on the run securities were the most prized securities out there, and they still are, including treasury bills, which all treasury bills are on the run. That's why treasury bills are always so much favored in the repo market. But yeah, that was, you know, here we had this brand new on the run U.S. Treasury that was suddenly in short supply, at least according to the Treasury Department and what they were seeking for information from the, from the financial system, asking them to report large positions to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. But come to find out, we did some sleuthing that under QE4, remember QE4 was the U.S. Treasury purchases from the Federal Reserve. Under QE4, they were buying on the run treasuries too. So maybe it wasn't bond bears being short particular securities because they were convinced QE was going to work and that was going to lead to recovering inflation, but the Federal Reserve was actually in the on-the-run market. Not only, do, not only were they in the on-the-run market, 
they knew they screwed up because they stopped almost, you know, as soon as that report came out, within a few months, they had stopped buying on the run securities. They realized that they were the problem, not the bond bears. And so what that meant was in early 2013, we had sort of this competing narrative. We have this idea that the economy is recovering, liquidity is perfect again, flood of liquidity by, by QE3 and QE4, but there's something not quite right going on in the repo market, especially where collateral is concerned. Now, Jeff, like you and our audience, I mean, not like you, like me, like the audience, we're learning as we're going about this Eurodollar system. But even I know that if there's a liquidity crisis, liquidity tightness, the treasuries that you want to be buying are the ones that are perhaps the liquid, least traded. You don't want to be sucking the oxygen out of the room by buying all the on-the-run securities. And I know that. But I would think that the United States Federal Reserve, who is the monetary authority, the central bank, should have known that. Why did they buy these on-the-run securities? How did they make this mistake? Or was it not a mistake and I'm, and I'm missing something? It seems, I guess I'm, what I'm trying to say is, this seems like an elementary misunderstanding of liquidity in the repo market and the importance of the repo market. Am I overdoing it? What am I missing? No, I think, you know, I agree with you, obviously. And I think uh, the reason I agree with you is pretty obvious. But I think, why were they doing it? Because remember how central banks actually operate. They're not technically proficient in what they do. They just conceive of these general ideas of what maybe people will think of as money printing in the flood of liquidity. And then they execute them according to the path of least resistance. So if your plan is just to buy treasuries because you want to signal to portfolio managers that you're doing something, you want to signal consumers that you're, you're flooding the markets with money in inflationary currency, then you just start buying stuff. And what do you start buying? Well, buy the stuff that's on sale, that's, that's easily available, right? I mean, you just, you do what's passively resistance, and that was the on-the-run treasury market. And all that did was it stripped it further of collateral, which created this little bubble of dysfunction that was indicative. It wasn't, it wasn't the entire, it was indicative of deeper problems that had not been resolved, which again, goes along with why the hell do you have to do QE four times? I mean, obviously something's not working. So you have these little minor, opaque, esoteric signals like this March 2013 event in the repo market that said, uh, recovery, maybe there's still dollar problems going on out there. And of course, what happened later in 2013 is those started to grow and grow and grow so that the shadow esoteric dysfunction started to become more obvious all over again. Talk a little, before we segue to March and April of 2020, talk a little bit about what happened in June of 2013, what that, the shock that took place. Well, again, when we're talking about the dollar system, we're not talking specifically about a domestic system. We're talking about a globalized whole. Again, reserve currency. It's a global currency. Therefore, when we talk about liquidity, we don't just mean liquidity in the United States under Federal Reserve's specific jurisdiction. We're talking about liquidity worldwide. And that's where tick comes in. Because that's what tick measures by accident. It gives us a sort of proxy or a visible window into those global shadows. It, take, it tells us about foreigners buying and selling US dollar assets doesn't give us a real sense of why they're doing it, but you can piece that together from the data, especially the banking data, the headline data. And what you find is 
up until June of 2007, August, summer of 2007, more and more foreigners were net buying U.S. dollar assets, which meant they were buying, they were also selling a bunch, but they were buying more than they sold and they were accumulating large balances of U.S. dollar assets. And the reason was because the euro dollar system was performing the functions it was supposed to. It was flooding the world, actually flooding the world. In fact, not just an imagination, but in fact, it was actually flooding the world with currency, probably too much. That's why we had asset bubbles. But it was balance sheet expansions. We had all of these monetary resources going all over the place that allowed not just governments and official sector, but private uh, private business, more, mostly the financial sector, private financial counterparties to accumulate all of these U.S. dollar assets, which they held as reserves. Now, reserves for what? For a period when they may not be able to secure dollars that everybody needs. Again, global reserve currency, you got to have it. The, so they, they accumulated these reserves for the future period when maybe the, the, the global reserve currency system, this euro dollar system, doesn't function the way that we think it's, or we've become dependent upon it. Now, the first outbreak of that was obviously in 2007 and 2008. There was another outbreak in 2011 and into 2012. And then we started to see the rumblings of a third in this 2013 data. Where in tick, what it showed was, again, what do you do if you need dollars? If you can't get them from the euro dollar market, well, you might as well start selling your reserve assets and mobilizing your reserves and use them because that's your last ditch effort your last ditch resort, your last part, your last recourse before defaulting. Once you're default, that's it, you're done. You know, think Argentina in 2000 and 2001. I mean, so the last thing you want to do is default. So your last ditch effort is to sell U.S. dollar assets that you've accumulated when the dollar system was actually working. So therefore, we, we've set ourselves up. We know that, okay, when things are good in the U.S., in the, do, in the global dollar system, foreigners tend to accumulate U.S. dollar assets. When things are bad, they tend to accumulate far less. And when things are really bad, they sell them. They're forced into outright selling. They're not selling treasuries because they hate the U.S. or they hate Donald Trump or they hate the U.S. dollar. They're selling treasuries because they can't get dollars. That's the only reason that it happens. And so what we saw in after you know the, the, repo, uh, ish, the repo episode, the repo issue in March of 2013, by May and June, when everybody was focused on Ben Bernanke talking about tapering, instead we had this overseas foreign massive wave of private selling in the tick data that said, oh, something's really not right out there in the rest of the system. And people may say, well, that's just like your opinion, man, that they're not selling it uh, for political purposes. But this graph uh, in your article, stick to, still ticked off in the shadows in April. Look at when the selling or the pause in buying is taking place. It it breathes in and out perfectly with the timing of the euro dollar system contractions. So it's it would be an amazing, a hell of a coincidence if all of a sudden there was a political upheaval and global disunity in each of these kind of four waves that coincide exactly with global banking liquidity crises. Uh, yeah, Jeff that's the point, right? I mean, we talk about this all the time. That's really the point. It's not just the tick data. The tick data is corroborated by a, a whole range of market prices and market indications that, that tell you that liquidity is becoming a problem. You know, the, there's any number, we talk about them all the time. And so it's not just the tick data is in isolation that we're just seeing foreigners selling and we're trying to, 
you know, impute motives to it that may not exist. We have this corroborated across a whole range, a whole survey. Oh, by the way, economic data too. You know, again, I think 2013 is, is a very important period to understand because it's so misunderstood because everybody thought that the economy's taking off. 2014 was going to be really awesome. I mean, that's, I mean, that was the narrative throughout 2014. When we got from 2013 forward, especially the middle of 2013 forward, began to see more and more of these warning signs that oh, we're, we still, we're still stuck in the same rut. We're still stuck with the same dollar issue and it's becoming another global. It was a, it was not just a, a minor thing. This was a severe issue that in the summer of 2013 or, or before the summer of 2013, late spring, foreigners, private, especially private foreigners, were forced into selling massive amounts of U.S. dollar assets. And they only do that because they're forced into it. What happened in March and April of 2020? Well, March, I mean, obviously, March speaks for itself. March 2020 is, you know, global financial crisis too. Yes, the Federal Reserve said we reacted, we reacted very well. We flooded the world with, with liquidity. Jay Powell said he saw it coming. And, of course, we know that's obviously false. So no matter what, I mean, you would expect to have an enormous amount of foreign selling of U.S. dollar assets in March of 2020 because, frankly, that's what happened. March of 2020 was a massive fire sale, global dollar shortage that was in some ways bigger than it was in 2008. And so that's exactly what you see in the tick data, private, especially the private side, in addition to the official sector, central banks and the like, they were all forced into selling U.S. dollar assets because the dollar shortage had become so big. Now, the question, I think, more significant one, is about April, because April, no matter how you want to frame it, um, Jay Powell, the Federal Reserve, by April, through the whole month of April, that was the apex. That was the biggest central bank activity in U.S. US American history. No, Never has the Federal Reserve or any central bank in the U.S. ever done as much as it did in April of 2020. And yet here we have, in the tick data at least, and as well as, you know, again, corroborated by all these markets, uh, prices, and surveys, the tick data showed that the amount of private selling of U.S. dollar assets, if it hadn't been for March, that would have been a record. It, it was far and above greater than it was in June of 2013. So what that says is, wait a minute, Powell's talking about this flood. Everybody else is talking about inflation. Everybody's talking about you know, this massive money printing operation. And why the hell are foreigners selling and selling at a rate that we've never seen before except for March? You know, it's, 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 it's indicative of something that's not right. Again, very reminiscent of 2013, where we have these competing narratives, where the idea that the Fed has flooded the system with liquidity, that's going to lead to inflation and recovery, where we're seeing signs inside the system of people's actual behavior, agents in that system, their actual behavior, doing things that are very highly contrary to that narrative. Jeff Snyder can be found on Twitter at Jeff Snyder underscore AIP. I myself could not afford the underscore, so you can just find me at Emil Kalinowski. And you can ask us questions there, which is exactly what Mihail at Mihail19 did. Jeff, he asked you a question about this article, and he wants you to explain the following sentence. Quote, Long-dated dollar assets are funded by short dollar liabilities, largely in euro dollars, augmented by currency swaps and derivative positions. Stress in dollar funding, including volatility and funding expectations, feeds out outward into margin calls, collateral adjustments, 
and in general rising liquidity costs. Can you explain what you're saying there in a slightly more elementary fashion? In very briefly, it's, it's very difficult because there's a lot of different concepts packed into what Go is a very no, large... Don't, you know, don't what do is it a, briefly. But no, let's, 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 do the, let's do the short version. The short version is it's nothing more than the typical banking setup. Everybody's, everybody understands maturity transformation, which is you borrow in the short run and you lend long. Therefore, you have assets that are all usually longer dated because you want loans, you want bonds that, are, that, are, that, are, that aren't maturing tomorrow. However, you want to fund them as cheaply as, you, as possible, which means you want to fund them in the short run, which you want, to, you want to do overnight repo, for example. And the reason what that does is it creates a maturity mismatch between you have illiquid assets that are not going to come due, which means they're not going to be able to um, extinguish until sometime way into the future. But yet you have funding liabilities that you must roll over day after day after day. So there could be a day when you can't roll over your funding liability which forces you into what? Selling that asset because you don't have the cash to pay for it. You can't fund it on your balance sheet any longer. So if you have this maturity mismatch, which in the offshore space, in this euro dollar space, adds, a, adds an additional element to it, and which, I, which I would consider the more important element, which is a different currency denomination. So you're borrowing in U.S. dollars, and even though you might be a bank in some far-flung location like Singapore or, or you know, Switzerland or you know, any number of money centers around the world, the Cayman Islands is a big one. So you're funding these longer maturity U.S. dollar-denominated assets that are usually housed outside of your local jurisdiction, and you're funding it in, in this offshore, loosely regulated, not really regulated very much, um, in uh, – increasingly undependable and unpredictable funding market. And what that does is it creates not only a maturity mismatch and the potential for funding rollovers, what recourse do you have at your local central bank? You have none because they can't give you any US dollars. They don't have any either. So that's the potential we're talking about is that, you know, it's essentially a basic construct, basic banking construct that's been exported all over this global reserve currency system when I say it's supplemented by, you know, derivatives and currency swaps and things like that, I don't think we really have the time to get, we'll have to save that for a future podcast or something. But it, that's part of the funding arrangement. It's part of the risk management that goes into this, this fundamental maturity mismatch. And it causes enormous problems because what used to be dependable, fluid, and efficient, the funding side of it has become increasingly undependable, unpredictable, and at times terrifying. Yeah. And, We'll talk about the derivatives another time, but I always like to think of them as just tools to help fit the investment into the balance sheet. So it's, uh, would, would that be accurate to say in the very briefest way? It's a tool, but it can also be a fund. It's a way okay. to funding things. And it's a way, I mean, there's none of this, all of this stuff is fungible, which is another concept that we need to reinforce over and over again is that, you know, Repo doesn't do just one thing, or derivatives don't just have one. They're multiple. They're used multiple ways. They're used in multiple fashions, and of course, that creates multiple potential points of failure that you have to be aware of. Speaking of the offshore, let's move away from the tick data and move to Germany, which is home to the well-known, well-respected survey. Comes out monthly. It surveys what the very important uh, economy and business leaders of Germany think about the future and about current conditions, uh, both in Germany and in the Euro area. And uh, you had an article 
about it as well. And it's called When Sentiment Flies. And sentiment is yeah. flying. <laughs> I wanted to title it Germans Have Lost Their Minds, but you know, that was probably a little bit too harsh, right? I mean, that, a little too extreme. Because what's going on there is just absolutely incredible. Because, I mean, according to the ZEW survey, which came in far above where it was supposed to, even the, even the economists were expecting a much lower level. It is the highest since 2006. And you, you, well, it doesn't really match what we're seeing on the ground. And, of course, the, the, the situation survey was still around near where the uh, you know, Great Recession levels of lows. So you have this tremendous dichotomy, which isn't necessarily abnormal, except for the fact that you know, this isn't 2006 anymore. So what we're supposed to take from this is Germans about the, the German survey respondents about the German economy, as well as the European economy. They have a separate ZEW survey for Europe, which is similar. What they're saying is, yeah, we know that's bad right now, but the ECB is being so very helpful and accommodative, this, this nightmare of a contraction won't last very long, and that within a few months, perhaps, not only will everything be back to normal, we're thinking maybe it'll be as good as the middle 2000s again. That's what they're saying is, yes, we realize that it's bad now, but we think that the ECB is being so helpful we're going to get right out of this rut real quickly and we'll even surpass the prior rut that we were in. And I think it's just absolutely bonkers. It's, it's absolutely crazy. And the reason, one reason why is this is nothing like 2006. And again, that's, you know, that's why we, you know, we and I, we talked about why we want to start with the tick data in 2013. Things have changed. And the way they've changed since 2006 is that back in 2006 in the middle 2000 before the pre-crisis era, not only did you have monetary expansion, you had monetary expansion because you had banking system expansion. You had private banks expanding their balance sheets all over the world, largely traded in U.S. dollars, but some, you know, some other currencies too, including the euro. So in order for us to get back to 2006, that would require balance sheet expansion, bank balance sheet expansion, not central bank balance sheet expansion. As we know, central bank balance sheet expansion accompanies all the worst kinds of environments because central banks are reacting to things as we talked about before why do you do qe four times because banks are not are expanding their balance sheets central banks are trying to do it for them except they're not they're not really made to do that kind of a thing so for us to think about going back to 2006 that would have to change before we even get into anything about covid19 and shutdowns or anything about the, the massive economic hole that we've created for ourselves here we would have to have a paradigm shift in the monetary system, the real monetary system, which is not central banks. So I think the ZEW, especially the respondents on the sentiment side, are looking at the world through basically an impossible prism. That's not happening. We're not seeing banks' balance sheets expanding. And that was before we got to 2020. What are the chances they're going to turn around for the rest of this year and into next year and say, well, you know, we took, a, we took a decade off there where we did, we did mostly shrinking. Now we're going to all of a sudden expand again. I mean, come on. The probability of that happening because the ECB did, a, what, their third version of QE, it's, 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 it's almost ridiculous to the point of being not even worth the time and effort to, to discuss it. But the reason well, we discuss it is because I think... No, go ahead. Why, why are we discussing well, because it's, I think it fits the common narrative, at least the narrative that's being formed in the early stages from March and April. Again, it's not what's going on in the system because most people don't read the tick data. They don't understand it if they do. So they're not seeing all of these contrary indications that are saying, 
what flood, what inflation, what recovery. Instead, they're relying on Jay Powell being on TV and Christine Lagarde and all of these people in the financial media who only talk about inflation and almost money printing. And so the perception is, Jesus, there's a flood of liquidity. Therefore, maybe it is like the middle 2000s again, when the two things are absolutely nothing alike. And there's absolutely no chance of that happening. And you are not alone in your estimation because the German 10-year bond yield resembles and traces out the path being uh, cut through by the sentiment, no, current conditions portion. So the current conditions, not great. It resembles what the 10-year bond looks, yield looks like. It does not resemble what the economic sentiment outlook looks like. So well, it's, a, you know, right. It's, it's easy to tell a survey respondent that you're, you're very hopeful about the future. There's no downside to that. You, you know, the ZEW guy calls and you say, yeah, I'm really hopeful because, you no, know, Christine Lagarde sounds really good. And I see the ECB's balance sheet is, is rising rapidly. And I don't really know what that means, but it sounds like it might be money printing. Whereas if you're in the bond market, You've got money on the line. You've got a lot of stuff on the line. You've got your, probably your survival on the line. If you look at repo markets and things like that, you're not betting the same way as they're responding to the ECB survey. And then the, the current level of yields is not a reflection, not just a reflection about the way things are today. That's also like the, the ZEW sentiment indicator, a reflection about future perceptions. But it's future perceptions where you have real money riding on the outcome. That's the difference. And so if you see the ZW sentiment indicator drastically diverge from the bond market, what you got to say is, you know, the people with money on the line and who have been proven were correct time and time again, they seem to be saying something very different than what you're hearing in the mainstream media. Speaking of somebody who's been proven time and time again, you wouldn't think it since uh, nominally a communist party leader, but uh, President Z over in China, uh, has been proven right repeatedly that we are not recovering, that we are not surging forward, that globally synchronized growth was just a bumper sticker, and that we have entered a new era. Jeff, you missed an opportunity to have the shortest title in your professional career. You could have said Lee VZ, but <laughs> you went with something that gets the idea across. Uh, here it is. A Chinese outbreak of Lee VZ round two. Jeff, you can never have that title back, but nevertheless, tell us what you're talking about in this article. What did you observe recently? Some interesting uh, behind the scenes that is kind of breaking out into the public, reading the tea leaves of Chinese politics. Jeff Snyder. Well, I think, you know, it fits with our, I think our, our, our developing theme here is the, the title, I, I had a lost opportunity. And that's what we're really talking about, right? <laughs> All this stuff is about lost opportunity. The fact that the economies are not growing. And I think, you know, to be clear, we should probably explain what we mean by round two versus round one. So what was round one? Round one was the aftermath of what we talked about at the beginning, which was 2014 and 2015, where everybody said, the global economy was growing. I mean, globally synchronized growth came in 2017. There was a version of it in 2014 when everybody said, well, it wasn't synchronized, but the globe is recovering in 2014. When, when you looked at these US, these euro dollar signals in 2013, you thought, it's just not happening. And so when we got to 2014, a couple of very important things happened where those esoteric, minor, hidden outbreaks were 
you know, you know, predominant of the, the, the way, the, the form of the dysfunction in 2013, they became more obvious starting in 2014 when, first of all, the yield curve began to, to uh, the nominal treasury yields began to drop again, which was exactly the opposite of what should have happened. And then how, and on top of that, maybe more importantly, the Chinese currency turned around too. And all of a sudden, it started to devalue, which confused everybody because everybody thought, you know, it was diehard, complete convention, ironclad, write it down, that the Chinese currency would always appreciate, especially against the U.S. dollar. So all of a sudden, you had nominal yields of U.S. treasuries, and not just U.S. treasuries, but German bonds and all the other rest too, were dropping through 2014 as a consequence of what we saw in 2013. And oh, by the way, the Chinese currency has moved into depreciation too, which is another signal of dollar shortage, dollar problems. And what that led to was by 2015, the Chinese economy, rather than roaring ahead and pulling the global recovery with it, it began to suffer all the same depressionary, deflationary symptoms, depressive activity that we had seen throughout the Western and developed economies since 2008. All of a sudden, oh my God, China maybe they're not going to be the one that gets us out of it. Maybe they're not the one that's immune for this, this, whatever disease is causing this problem. And in terms of the communist party, they had already done all the traditional Keynesian stuff back in 2009. And again, in 2012, you know, the, the China, the people's bank of China, they did all of their monetary stimulus. The government did all of their fiscal stimulus by 2015. It was like, wait a minute, we did all these things and still we're, now it's looking like we're in the downturn too. What a mess we've got for ourselves. We expanded our financial system to a point where it looked like Japan in the 1980s. And now we've got this economic downturn as a, as a, as a reward for it. So we had Xi Jinping, who had taken over in 2012, promising to reform and do all these other things, realizing the dangers that China had been in from its financial expansion in the post-crisis era. And now the, the, the possibility of not enough economic growth to pay it off and support it, it was a potential nightmare for him. However, it seems like he did not quite have unified power structure behind him. And opposing him was a guy by the name of Li Keqiang, who was supposed to have been the, taken over in 2012 because he had been the previous leader, Hu Jintou's uh, protege, so to speak. So you had this natural sort of rivalry it was an uncertain situation, unnatural situation if you're from the perspective of most Western observers. I mean, China was this impenetrable monetary, you know, economic mass that would always grow. In fact, it was written into the, to the Chinese DNA that they would prioritize growth above everything. So all these things were happening. And what happened in early 2016 was it appears as if Xi Jinping, nominally number one, let Li Keqiang, nominally number two, Anomaly number two, the premier is usually the one who runs the, econ the economic portfolio. He allowed him to do another round of the traditional Keynesian monetary stimulus early in 2016 to see if that would rescue China from what it seemed to be, what people were talking about at the time. They called it a hard landing. And of course, as we know, it didn't really work. It didn't restart Chinese growth. And so Xi Jinping had positioned himself such that he said, okay, well, I'm going to let Lee do this one more time, but we're also not on board with it. Quick question, Jeff. Was the purpose of this stimulus to prevent a hard landing or to reacquire that growth 
trajectory that existed before 2008. Because if it was to prevent the hard landing, I suppose it worked because, you know, in uh, January and February of 2016, the apocalypse, the monetary apocalypse was on us. Things, I won't go through the list, but everything was breaking around the world. And it seemed like uh, that meeting in Shanghai, I believe it was, uh, the G20 financial leaders, I believe it, it seemed to put a halt, a, a slowdown in the devolution and the deterioration that we were observing. Now, it, we never actually got back to that growth trajectory. But was it just, hey, let's, let's, uh, let's try to put a halt to this, uh, uh, this collapse, or was it let's get back to where we were growing at? Well, that's a good question. Obviously, I can't speak for the communist Chinese government, nor would I ever really want to. But I think what happened was that's the reality that Xi Jinping put forward after it was over. He said, that's the best you did. Now, I don't think that was the intent behind it. I think Li Keqiang is a steeped in Western economic ideology, very good standing Keynesian. Really, was his, his idea, his purpose behind it was, we're going back to the old way of doing things, which was China pre-2012, growth, 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 growth. We grow, we grow, we grow, we grow, we grow. And it, it, you know, the three represents from Deng Xiaoping. The idea was, we're, you know, this is a temporary rut you know, 2013, 2014, and 2015, 2016 would be the start of the turnaround. And it fed into the narrative behind globally synchronized growth. The idea that the Communist Party had finally come around, they'd gone big again like they had done in 2009, and economists throughout the West were convinced, oh, China's just going to go back to normal. So it's just a matter of time until China starts posting these, you know, 20% ridiculous growth rates again. That was the, I think that was the intent. But more importantly, that was the expectation especially in 2016 and 2017, that this stuff was going to work. Now, Xi Jinping, on the other hand, um, uh, we're assuming privately, but he also, you know, there was a couple of indications, signs in 2016 that he was not on board with this. He did not think that this was going to work. And therefore, he was opposing this last-ditch effort to put China back on its pre-crisis trajectory. And as 2017 developed, of course, China never even came close to it. It fell way short. Yes, it rebounded from 2016 in those depths of you know, Feb January and February 2016. But, you know, cost-benefit analysis, we did all of this stimulus. We did, we did these things that we didn't really want to do, that the government didn't really want to do, the communists didn't really want to do. This is all we got for it. It was very hollow. It was very minor. It was very limited. And so that set up the next couple years where in 2017 going forward, Xi Jinping said, there is no global recovery here, fellows. We got to start battening down the hatches, tightening up, getting ready for the consequences of a China where we don't have the same level of growth. And part of that meant stripping Li Keqiang of his economic portfolio, giving it to Xi loyalists, and putting Xi's name into the constitution alongside Mao. All of a sudden, the cult of personality becomes paramount again as these communists begin preparing for life after growth. That was the important message in 2017 and 2018. And that was Lee versus Xi round one. Well, then you would expect to never hear from Lee again, because after 2018, I mean, during 2018, we had the globally synchronized growth disintegrate. So we were proving Z, President Z correct. And therefore, we would never expect to see his name again. And it just goes to show you uh, that I am not made to be the head of a one billion plus 
communist uh, country uh, because I don't have the political uh, the nuance to keep my enemies closed for some other purpose in the future where he might become uh, useful again. Uh, Jeff, what do you think maybe, maybe might be happening that all of a sudden Lee has made a comeback right during the worst downturn we've seen in decades? Yeah, it was interesting that he made his comeback in January and February when the Chinese economy was shut down alongside the virus. And then he's been more and more prominent in terms of how China's crafting their narrative about their, their economic response to the economic consequences of those shutdowns. And Li has been uh, not necessarily front and center, but he's been far more visible in public than he had been during that interim period where he was sidelined, mostly sidelined. So it's interesting that they brought Li out and why he's out and what he's talking about. Earlier this month, he made this massive stir in China, at least, where he talked about um, not resurrecting, but, you know, reinvigorating the, what he called the stall economy, which <laughs> when I first saw it, I thought, wait a minute, you want, you really want to talk about the economy in a stall position where it's going to be falling? No, what he actually meant was street vendors, kiosks, merchants, that kind of thing, where, the, you know, what do we do with all of these millions of unemployed that maybe aren't showing up in the unemployment statistics, but we know that they're there, they're in the cities, they're not doing much now, how do we put these people to work? Well, the, the traditional economic answer would have been, well, just let the economy heal, right? I mean, V-shaped recovery. This thing is just going to go right back to where it was. What he's saying by implication and what we're inferring from what he's saying is that we have, we have this massive problem, especially in the underclasses in China, where we're not sure where they're going to have, a, they're going to have work to go back to. Therefore, why don't we start making, well, opening up the streets, allow street vendors. He's talking about how it's part of cultural China, which you know, very Maoist in how we put it such that, you know, he's trying to put forward a plan and also, you know, put forward the narrative that the communist government is looking out for the little people who are likely to be squeezed and left behind by what's going on and what's really going on in 2020. And almost as soon as he talked about the stall economy, there was an official mouthpiece uh, article written, I think it was in the Beijing Daily, that said, the stall economy, that's, that's, that's dirty, that's, that's, you know, old China, that's garbage. You know, that's... Um, that's, that's not high-quality growth, which is the buzzword that Xi Jinping unleashed in the 19th Party Congress in, in October of 2017. And so we kind of have this Lee out there saying, we got to do something about the unemployed, give them the stall economy, and Xi saying, I don't think it's going to work. And is it working? Because you brought all of this up because we had some important data that came out at the beginning of this week, the big three for China, industrial production, so let's say manufacturing uh, business owners. Then we had uh, retail sales, so let's say the stall economy, the households. The and stalled then we had fixed, economy. <laughs> yeah, and, and they are. They're the most stalled. I mean, all the numbers are bad, but if you rank them from worst to uh, best or least worst, it's the household that's suffering the most. And the third one that I haven't mentioned yet is Chinese fixed asset investment, which I'm going to rename as infrastructure and representing the local government. So we've got these three important sectors uh, and how they all participate and what proportion of the economy they get to share. And what did the numbers for May tell us and how does it fit with the Li and Z fight? that it's taking a lot longer than maybe everybody expected. That's, I mean, to put it succinctly as possible, it's the idea that 
you know, V-shaped economy within a couple months, we're back to normal. Well, China started earlier. Remember January and February, they were locked down where we didn't get into that until really April. So they're a couple months ahead of us on the V curve. And the V is light on its right, just like it is everywhere else. And so you, started, you kind of get the palpable sense that Chinese authorities are starting to plan ahead for the possibility, maybe even probability, that the economy in China, as, as well as everywhere else in the world, doesn't actually go right back to normal the way it used to be. This is a long-haul problem. Therefore, we better start thinking about more intermediate and long-run solutions to that major problem. That's really what we're getting into. And I think the Li versus Xi thing is Xi being probably skeptical about all of this, is positioning himself to say, you were wrong yet again. I was right. We better listen to me. More authoritative, authoritativism, more dictatorship, more power held in one, you know, one single hand, that kind of a thing. He's battening down the hatches even further. And it's a, you know, it's proven time and again that <laughs> that's re- when you look when you pay attention to what they're actually doing not what everybody's saying you get a real sense of how the economy is progressing and you know china is is a very important economic system to pay attention to the irony is of course that we may be getting better information or better signals from the leadership from the chinese the head of the chinese communist party than we are from the head of uh our our wonderful monetary and economic uh, citadels here in the West. Well, you know, as I've always said, or I've said quite a lot, the communist Chinese know more about the dollar than the Federal Reserve. They don't know a lot about the dollar, but they definitely know more than the Fed does. And that, that explains a whole lot about how crappy our situation is. There's no better way to end it than with that. So, Jeff, thank you very much, and I'll talk to you again next week. Take care, Emil.